welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, this morning we're going to take a, a quick break uh, in between series. We just finished off the, the series that we did in Second Corinthians, and we're going to be starting a series on the life of Abraham. And so this morning I thought we'd do something sort of just a one-off. And, um, and one, of, one of the great stories in the Old Testament is Second Kings chapter 22. Uh, it's, it's a time where King Josiah is the king over the southern uh, two tribes, the king over Judah. So the Israel is split and he became king at eight years old. Can you imagine eight years old and being king? Uh, that's terrifying for everyone. Um, and it says in the 18th year of his reign, so he's now 26, 18 years as king, he looks at the temple and it says the temple's in disrepute. It's, it's been neglected. It's been known, it needs renovations, it needs repairs. And so he says, here, give them the money they need and they deserve and empty the bank account for this. We need to fix God's temple. And so they do that. They take the money and they start renovating. And, and you can imagine, you know, renovating, you got to first tear down, clean up and everything. And, and while they're doing that, they, they find this book and they hand it to the priest and the priest gets it and he looks at it and goes, oh, I've heard of this book. It's the book of the law. That's interesting. Hands it to the scribe and scribe goes and he takes it to King Josiah and he says, the high priest gave me this book they found in the temple. Well, let's read it. And so they begin to read through the book of the law and Josiah is just gobsmacked. He's just, he's just shocked hearing what is being read to him when he compares it to how they're living. And he, he sees this huge contrast. And so what's amazing to me is Israel forgot the law. They'd forgotten all about it. And this, this happenstance of rediscovering this book opened up their eyes. And so Josiah begins to institute all kinds of reforms, tearing down all the, the idol worship to all these other gods that Israel was worshiping to and so forth, completely turned around Judah, uh, the, the Southern uh, kingdom for a time. And, and Josiah is called one of the great Kings of Israel for that reason, because he humbled himself when they rediscovered the book but it just, it always blows my mind that they, they lost the book. They forgot about it. And, and so this morning, what I thought we'd do, what I really wanted to do, have my heart to do is normally we, we preach from this book. And, and this morning, what I want to do is I want to take some time to explain why we do that. Why is it that we're speaking week in, week out from this book? And, and specifically, even a little bit, if I can add this, the, the, the method or what, how we preach, what we do is we, we pick a book or we pick a section. And so we just finished second Corinthians. Before that, we decided to do Genesis one to four. Before that we did Ephesians and, and we don't just, you know, well, Ephesians six chapters, six weeks off we go and just kind of burn through those books. We take our time and we go through it verse by verse. And there's, there's two reasons to do that versus the other option, which is more topical, where you pick a topic and you find some verses that match that topic and then you preach on the topic. And, and I do believe there is a place for that from time to time, picking, you know, pick a topic and preach on that. And we do that from time to time. But really what we want to do is we want to study from the scriptures and take our time and explore it. And, and the first reason we do that is because quite frankly, I'm not clever enough to come up with a topical sermon every week. It's a lot of work. So it's easier to just read the next three or four verses and go, oh, that's what we're going to be teaching on. Thank you. And that's what we do. So for that's my own personal admission. Uh, but the other reason that's so great about it is, it is it forces you to address uncomfortable topics. It, it forces you to address things that you don't necessarily want to talk about because it's a bit controversial, it's a bit difficult, but we need to talk about it. And so that's what we try to do. We try to go pick a book, pick a section. Like I said, we're going to start Abraham. So we're going to look at the life of Abraham, which is a few chapters in Genesis. And we kind of go through that. <clears throat> but this morning, and we want to talk about the Bible. And, and you know, you think about the word Bible literally just means book. And so it's, it's the book. That's what this is. It's, it's so famous. It, it just doesn't need any other description with it. 
uh, the, the Bible was the first book off the Gutenberg press, right? So that was when the Western world discovered, um, you know, mass market publishing and printing and stuff. And so the Bible was the first one that they printed. And I think they made 180 copies, which sounds like not much, you know, now you go down to Staples and you can burn that off in a few hours. But, but the reality is back then it would take decades to print a Bible because you were literally printing it. You were, you had a scribe, which has meant that to own a Bible or to have a part of the Bible was a big deal, was massive expense and there was very limited. And so to be able now to just mass print these 180 at a time was, was massive because it makes the Bible more accessible. And even today, even though that happened in 1454, there's still 49 copies today and, and they're selling for millions of dollars. It's estimated today that now, instead of that 180, now there's 80 to 100 million Bibles printed every year, just, just being spit out. And that's just printed. That doesn't count all the Bible apps and so forth. And so they estimate that right now there's about 6 million Bibles, 6 billion Bibles in circulation. Think about that. There's 8 billion people. And right now there's 6 billion Bibles that currently exist. That number has doubled in my lifetime. And I'm getting old, but I'm not that old. All right. Uh, the next closest book in terms of books sold is Chairman Mao's book. And they, they sold over a billion copies. But I kind of think that in China, that books might be pushed a little bit on people. Um, the third closest and next religious one is the Quran. And that comes in at 800 million copies. So we're talking at millions and billions, M's and B's. It's not even close. They don't even include the Bible on the bestseller list anymore because it's just so far ahead, everything else. Um, in terms of translations, it's the most translated book. There's 700 copies, 700 languages that the entire book of uh, the Bible is translated into and another 1600 languages of just the New Testament. And then there's even hundreds more of just parts of the New Testament. So it's thousands of translations out there. Uh, it shaped our culture, it shaped our language. Uh, especially the King James Bible. So many things that we say, like, we need to get to the root of the matter, or you cut me to the quick, or, or old wives tale. All of those phrases came out of the King James Bible. And so it shaped so much of our thinking. But it's also a bit of a scandalous book. In the, in the 15th and 16th centuries, if you possessed an English translation of the Bible, you could be killed. In fact, one man was actually executed for translating the Bible into the English. That was William Tyndale. And, and you may think, well, that was 500 years ago. Lots changed or 600 years ago, even lots changed. But starting in 2019 and still going, there's a member of the Finnish parliament who is facing up to six years in prison for tweeting a Bible verse in Romans. Now, to put this even in more perspective, she's a Finnish member of parliament. And in Finland, they have a state religion. It's Christianity. And therefore the Bible is, is recognized as authoritative in Finland. And yet just quoting it, no commentary, just quoting it is hate speech. So it's a scandalous book. It's, it's, it, it drives people to all kinds of different reactions. And so those are some interesting facts that you could find out in your own favorite search engine, you know, for people still using Alta Vista. Um, but what makes the Bible truly special though, in my opinion, is, is there, and why there's no other book like it is because of who wrote it. You see, it's, it's a sacred book because it's God's book. It's, it's God's story with mankind. And, and it's autobiographical, meaning you, just like any autobiography you read, you read the book to get to know the author. That's why we study this book. So we can get to know the heart, who the author is, to know who God is. And so we call it God's word, our father's word. And, and I think back to when I was growing up, the greatest gift I ever received, uh, I believe that kind of set me up for success was believing that this is in fact the word of God and the word of God is authoritative. And that, that when it comes to me and my opinions and the word of God, the word of God wins. That I don't come and try to conform or, or pick and choose it's not a buffet, but rather I come to this scripture and I, I have to study it and I conform myself to father's word. And I'll be honest, there's some passages here that are hard. There are things where it's like, man, that's gonna be more conflict and I don't want conflict, but yet I know this is true. I know this is life. 
And so rather than dismissing this, I choose to wrestle with it. I choose to understand it because what we have before us is a gift. It's, it's father revealing himself to us. Uh, turning your Bibles with me to second Peter, second Peter chapter one. And I love how Peter describes the scriptures and, and really their, their purpose and their value. So second Peter chapter one, verse 16 to 21. <clears throat> Let me read. That's first Peter. He says, for we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were made eyewitnesses to his majesty. Right? He's not, we didn't sit down and craft a story and think, hmm, what would be the best way to kind of create this new religion, right? Because we didn't, they probably weren't clever enough, right? They were simple fishermen for the most part. So we didn't create this up. <coughs> Verse 17, for when we received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That's what we're sharing. We're simply repeating what we, were, what we heard and what we saw. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arise, arises in your heart. Pay attention, he says. Pay attention to what we're teaching you. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever been made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What that means is that, that the scripture can't mean something to me and then something to Sheila and something to Quinn and something to Greg and, and it'd be all different and that's okay. It's not how it works. It's, it's not about, what that does is it places me at the center of it. I am now authoritative over the scripture and I get to pick and choose, but that's not how it works. This is father's word. And the authority is a derived authority from God. And therefore I need to conform to that. And so all scripture is from God and it's, it's inspired by God. I love how the, the King James kind of puts this idea that, that, the, these men wrote it as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what we have is a divinely inspired book written by man, right? There is a combination of it. The, the, the Bible didn't descend down with angelic voices. Ah! And you know, they, they worshiped and off they went, right? That's not how it worked. But God was in different authors and they recorded all this. And so I love again, what, what John says about this. So turn to first John. One book to the, to the right. First John chapter one, verses one to four. And what we're going to see again, it's the eyewitness testimony of these men. What was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. What we've seen, what we've heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. So that's what we have here in the scriptures is the eyewitness testimony of these men throughout history. These, these men throughout history who, who witnessed and experienced God and they're revealing it to us so that we can see who God is and discover who God is through these people. And so I have four goals for us this morning. Number one is I want to establish confidence in this book, in the Bible, that we can have confidence in what we're reading and what we're studying and that we can trust it. So that's number one. Uh, I wanna explain why we teach from this book each week rather than other books. And, and maybe even stir up some excitement for you to kind of do your own study, your own research. 
Because, you know, in, in preparing for this week, I've done all kinds of, listen to podcasts, read books, articles, and, and so forth. And there's a lot of great information out there that talk about the history of the Bible and, and, and how great the Bible is and how tested it is. And, and we could do, you know, a 15-part series on that, but I, I think that would be too much because it comes informational. But it'd be great to do at home. It'd be great for your, so hopefully we can stir up some of that excitement so you can figure out on your own how the Bible came to be today. But most importantly, what I want to do is I want to stir up some excitement for you to read this book on your own. So it's not just when you come here on a Sunday morning, you read a few verses and then go home and put it away. But, but rather that we, we partake it and we digest it. You know, there's, I think they said there's on average about four or five Bibles per household of, you know, people who own a Bible, right? Generally speaking, you don't own one, you own five is what they're saying. Some people more, some people a little bit less, but, but that's the average. And they say it's while being the bestseller, it's the most underread book because it just sits there. Um, and so hopefully we can develop a passion to read this book regularly because, because it's, it's life giving. Now, please understand, our hope is not in this book. That's not it. And in John 5, 39 and 40, the, the Pharisees were coming to Jesus and he scolded them. He says, you search the scriptures. You know, he's talking about the old covenant law, the old Testament. He says, you, skirt, you search the scriptures that you would find life. And he says, you will not find it. I've said that to, to, in conferences or places where I've taught and people have gasped at that thought when I say there's no life in this book. It's not, there's none. Simply put, when I was a kid, I had a friend who was Jewish. And he says, you know, if we drop the Bible, we have to like fast for, for like six days. What do you have to do? I said, I pick it up. It's, it, it's a book. It's, it's ink and a paper, right? Or an app on your phone. There's no life in the book. So Jesus says, you search the scriptures, think you'll find life, but you will not find it because the scriptures testify to me and I'm eternal life, but you are not willing. So here's the thing. We study the scriptures so that we could go to Jesus to find life. So that's our hope. That's where we're going to go find, find it. So the goal isn't just to make you more biblically literate, to make you more knowledgeable. I mean, uh, Vladimir Lenin, one of the great mass murderers of the 20th century. He had the whole gospel of John memorized. Did nothing for him. I, I remember meeting one couple in counseling and they came to me and they thought, all we need to do is just memorize more scripture and everything will be okay. Well, they're coming to me for counseling with some pretty significant problems because we're just knowledge. So that's not what we want. What we want to do is we want to develop that intimate relationship with the author, with Jesus. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray. Father, a bit of a different message this morning, but I pray that life would still be manifested, that you would encourage us, that you would, dare I say, light a passion, light a fire within us for you, discovering you through your word and being willing to, to put in the time to do that and the effort as well. In your name we pray, amen. All right, let's start where the Bible came from, right? So it's, it's written over a period of 1600 years started in roughly 1500 uh, BC with Moses and then was finished roughly around 100 AD with the apostle John. So Moses wrote the first five books of the old Testament and John's responsible for the book of revelation with a few other books as well. And so it's over 1600 years and they estimate around 40 different authors. Now they say estimate because they don't really know who wrote all the books, right? So it's not clear who wrote say first Samuel and second Samuel. And it's not clear who, who exactly wrote Chronicles, for example. Uh, they say it's not clear who wrote Hebrews, but we know it's Paul, right? So, you know, so we're not entirely sure about all that. So it might be more than 40 different, but let's just say it's 40 different people over a span of 1600 years. That's incredible. Think about that. Let's, let's use this as an example, right? Star Wars. Any Star Wars fans out there? There's not many anymore, right? Because no one wants to associate themselves anymore with it, right? And there's a lot, of, a lot of angst there. I get it. So think about it. The original Star Wars, four, five, and six, written by George Lucas-ish, right? One man, somewhat consistent story. Some plot holes, Luke kissing Leia. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie to you, right? But generally consistent story. And then he writes one, two, and three. 
but some plot holes in four, five, and six still compared to one, two, and three. And then seven, eight, and nine come along. Oh, it's just a disaster, right? So in a span of what, 40 years, a handful of people couldn't write one consistent story. 1600 years, 40 different authors, different cultures, different backgrounds, never meeting each other are able to write one consistent story. Man's not smart enough to do that. And if man did, if man did try to do that, I guarantee you, he would try to clean up some of the more difficult passages. So again, that's how we know it's a divinely inspired book. It's written in three different languages. Most of the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. Some of it, like in Ezra and Daniel's and uh, part of Chronicles, I believe, is written in Aramaic, which was the language of Jesus' day. And the New Testament's written exclusively in Greek. It includes a multitude of genres, right? So you have the, the law and that's the, the more principle. This is how you live, rules-based. And that's the, the, the first, roughly first five books of the Bible. You've got historical narratives, uh, whether that be uh, Samuel or Chronicles or Kings, or you've got the book of Acts or the gospels, historical narratives. You've got book of records, like the chrono chronological records in say uh, chron uh, Chronicles. Too many crons in there. Uh, you've got wisdom, uh, 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 proverbs and, and parables that Jesus tells. And so, so Jesus' parables are in the book of historical narratives. And so within that book, there's different genres going on there. And that's important. You've got poetry and you've got songs like this, the book of Psalms or the book of Song of Songs. Beautiful poetry there. You've got prophetic books, prophetic writings of, uh, of rebukes, of warnings, of reminding of covenants. Um, some of those prophetic warnings have already come to pass and some are yet to come as we see in the book of Revelation. And then we've got the epistles, which is the Greek word for letters. And some letters are written to large groups like churches, like what we did in second Corinthians. Some are written to, to personal acquaintances like Timothy and Titus and Philemon and so forth. And, and it's important to understand these, these various genres when you're reading the book. Now, some of it we just do intuitively, but if we're not aware of it sometimes, that's gonna impact our interpretation of it. So for example, the book of, uh, sorry, the gospels are narratives, but then our, what we have recorded there is some of the things Jesus taught. And Jesus says, I am the door. Well, he's not literally saying he's a door. He's got two hinges and a doorknob. And, you know, that's not what he's saying. He's using it as a, as a parable, as an analogy. And we understand that intuitively, but it's, sometimes it's not always as obvious. And so knowing the genre will help us understand the passage and what it's saying. Now, the other thing to keep in mind with the Bible is that it's a book of covenants. Now we're going to get into this and I've been waiting. I'm excited to talk more about covenants because there's such a, and for me, it completely changed my understanding of how we relate to God. But a covenant is more than a contract because a contract can easily be broken, right? We see that all the time, especially in the world of sports. And, and so it's more than that. A covenant is an agreement between two parties and there's different kinds of covenants and different depths to those covenants. But what we have here largely is, is a book of covenants of God and man. And largely there's more than two, but largely there's two. And we call it the old covenant and the new covenant. Now that's why your Bible is separated in two parts, old Testament, new Testament, because Testament is just another word for covenant. Now the tricky part though, is when does the new covenant begin? Does it begin Matthew one? No, but unfortunately that's what your Bible will say, right? You go to Matthew one, turn back a page, probably has a blank page with new Testament. And that's when the new covenant begins. Matthew one. No, it began on the cross. The covenant says in Hebrews that the covenant can't come into pass until there's a death. So the moment Jesus died, that's when the new covenant begins. What that means is Jesus's ministry was largely old covenant. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is not Christian Ethics 101. The Sermon on the Mount is the Mosaic Law 101. And a lot of people call it the Law 2.0. It's not the Law 2.0. It's the original law as it was intended for. See, by the time Jesus walked the earth, they'd watered it down. So Jesus was merely restoring it. 
That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. And so what we have is these, these two covenants and, and that helps us understand it. Now let's understand a little bit about the old covenant. So the structure of the old Testament that we have is a little bit different based on whether you have a, a Hebrew a Jewish Bible, if you have a Catholic Bible and you have a Protestant Bible, right? So there's, a, there's a little bit different there. The Hebrew Bible is what is called the Tanakh. And it's basically, it's three Hebrew letters. And each of those letters represent the law, the prophets and the writings. And that's essentially how scripture was understood at that time. Even Jesus says that, right? So when, when Jesus is now um, uh, resurrected and he's meeting with his disciples, is, he, he sits down and it says he, he spoke clearly now from the law the prophets and the writings, right? So that's sort of how they understood it was divided. And so this Tanakh is sort of an acrostic they use to explain that. Now the law is the first five books of our Bible, the, what Moses wrote, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy literally means the law again. So it's just a rehash, right? And, and so that's essentially what he's, what, what is considered the law. And then the prophets are letters or books written by the prophets. Uh, Joshua would be considered that a prophet and judges, uh, Samuel and Chronicles. So not Chronicles, sorry, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and the 12 minor prophets. Now these minor prophets were not just not good enough to make the major leagues, you know, sitting in that minor league system. No, the minor prophets just meant they were shorter books but they had all the same authority as the other prophets, right? So that's the prophetic writing. And they would, they would lump all that together. And then you'd have the writings and the writings would be Ezra, Nehemiah and Chronicles and, and Psalms and Proverbs and so forth, all those other books. And that's sort of how a Hebrew Bible would be laid out. So if you were to pick up a Hebrew Bible, you would be a little bit confused in the order because it, the books are ordered differently than ours. Now the Catholic Bible is based off of the Greek, Greek Septuagint. And the Greek Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that existed in Jesus's day. And it includes a few more books, which we know as the Apocrypha. And so if you have a, Hebrew, a Catholic Bible, then, <clears throat> then at the end of Malachi, you would have a few other books that were written in what's called the intertestinal period between the, at the end of Malachi and the beginning of, of Matthew and John the Baptist's ministry. There's about 400 years. And so you have books like the, uh, the book of Maccabees and the book of Enoch and a few other books as well that fit in that, that category. And they, they took that because it was all, that was what was in the Greek Septuagint. And they kind of adopted that. And so then the Protestant Bible now, again, is a little bit different because we're a little bit different. And, and so the Protestant movement, again, starts around, what, 1500s roughly, and uh, Luther and Calvin and so forth. And for them, it was all about what's the original source saying? And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to get back to the original source. And, and the Catholic church was saying, well, it's this version. And they just, the, the Protestants, the Calvin and Luther and so forth, they said, well, let's use the Hebrew Bible. And so the Hebrew Bible, which, you know, really wasn't codified until about hundred AD. So after Jesus, and they, they codified it in response to the Christian movement because the Christians were using the Greek Septuagint and they didn't like that. And so they made their own version called the, and they, they codified it in 100 AD. And, and so they went to that. And so our Hebrew Bible looks, uh, our English Protestant Hebrew Bible looks a lot like the Jewish Bible, but we changed the order because they did. And, uh, and, and so we, we have all that. And so kind of the question is, you know, do we, do we include the Apocrypha and so forth? Well, we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit later. <clears throat> All right, let's talk about the structure of the New Testament then, right? This gets a little bit easier because again, it's written in Greek and we have a lot of those original manuscripts. And so you had the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you had the book of Acts. And, and really this helps to understand the book of Acts. The, the full title is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Man, that transforms the book right? The acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. That's what that book is about. And that's one of those historical narratives along with those, those gospels. And then you have the letters of Paul. And so, you know, after book six starts with Romans and you have a, a section of letters, all, they're all the Pauline epistles and they're ordered from largest to smallest to the churches, 
right? So Romans is the longest book and then first Corinthians and second Corinthians. And, and then you have the pastoral, uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. The pastoral epistles <coughs> or the, the prison epistles, sorry. And, and then you've got his personal letters. Those are called the pastoral ones to Timothy and Titus and Philemon and so forth. And then they had the book of Hebrews. And so the reason they put Hebrews beside Paul's letters, because they don't know if it was written by Paul or not, which it was. And then, and then after that, you've got the other apostles. So you got James and you got Peter and you got John. And again, it's ordered from longest to shortest. And then you get Jude, which is the crispy part of our Bible. Cause we all forget about Jude. Hey Jude, uh, shout out. Um, and then, and then you have finally the book of revelation, but that's not the name of the book right now. A lot of people call it revelations. It's not called revelations. It's one revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the name of the book. And when you understand that it changes the book because the book's about Jesus more than book about the end times. The book is about Jesus being revealed. Yes. In the end times, but it's still about Jesus. So that's sort of the order and the structure of the new Testament. So that helps you. I think when you're kind of flipping through your Bible, trying to find the book, is it written by Paul? Well, it'd be kind of in the middle of the new Testament. Is it, is it Peter or James? That's towards the end of it. That sort of thing. <clears throat> now, um, the question then is like, well, do we still need the old covenant today? Do we still need the old Testament? And there are some pastors out there, famous pastors uh, who you probably heard who've said, no, all we need is the new Testament. And, and, and I even noticed that there are, there are churches out there that focus mainly new Testament, like almost exclusively new Testament. And then there's that almost exclusively old Testament. And you get into this debate and, and old Testament scholars say, you can't understand the new Testament if you don't understand the old. And guess what? New Testament scholars say, you can't understand the old unless you understand the new. Well, guess what? It's both get over it. Right. <laughs> we need the whole of scripture and, and there's great value for us in the old Testament. Um, turn to second uh, Timothy chapter three. Second Timothy three verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, adequate equipped for every good work. All scripture. Now keep in mind when Paul wrote this, all he knew was the old Testament. There was no such thing as a new Testament at this point. So he's specifically referring to the old Testament. All scripture has a point. All scripture has a purpose. And again, when Jesus was teaching his disciples, everything they needed to know about the new covenant, he could teach it from the law, the prophets and the writings of the old Testament. So there's great value. And it's why we're going to go back to it next week when we start looking at the life of Abraham, because that how God interacts with Abraham has a lot to say about a, the new covenant, but also a lot to say about who God is and how he interacts with man and how man interacts with him. And so that's what we want to learn. We want to get to know the character of God that way. And so there's incredible value for it. So we don't dismiss it. Now we do tend to bias towards the new covenant and the new Testament, because that's what teaches the new covenant clearest, but we're drawing in the old covenant. We're going back to it and understanding it and what it means for us today. The key though, is to understand that they are two covenants that they're that not everything in the old Testament relates to us today. What I mean by that, and this is true of the whole Bible, by the way, all of scripture wasn't written to you. It was written for you, but it wasn't written to you, right? When, when God is speaking to Moses about the law, that's not for you and I, that was for the Jews. That's who he's speaking to. When Paul is writing to Corinth, he's speaking and writing to the Corinthians, not to you. Now that doesn't mean that we don't have, can't glean something from it. There's something in it for us, right? Remember we just read all scriptures, you know, adequate. It's good for us. It's inspired by God. 
but we just have to understand it's, you have to understand it's not written to you and understand first and how would they understand it? And does it still apply even? So go back in, in back in Timothy, second Timothy two and verse 15, Paul writes, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The old King James Bible says, rightly dividing the, the word of God. What, what he's saying there is that, that when you read the Old Testament and you're reading through Exodus 20 and the law is there, understand that's for the Jews, not for us. We're not under the law. And, and so it doesn't apply, which is why we don't, you know, we're allowed to eat bacon and shellfish. Why you're allowed to wear mixed fibers and a host of other laws, right? There's 613 laws. We're not under those things. And so if, if we didn't rightly divide there, you would read those things and go, wait a minute, just like King Josiah, you know, they, they were, they're Sabbath. You know, we need to stop work Friday night, uh, sundown to Saturday sundown. What are we doing? We got to get back to the law, but that's not what it's for. How do we know that? Because of the new covenant. And so we can understand the new, uh, the old covenant better for what, what's applicable in the old Testament to the Jews. What's prophetic about what's to come. What's about the nature of God and the relationship with God and so forth. Right? So again, we don't dismiss it, but we need to, uh, to rightly understand it in, in the proper light. And so again, we don't throw it out. There's great value in the old. Again, who God is, how he relates to us, how we relate to him, and even uh, what the new covenant looks like. All right, let's talk about the canon of scripture, right? Everyone heard that word canon, right? We don't talk about the, the gunpowder canon. Uh, the word canon is a Greek word, and it literally means measuring stick. And so when we talk about the canon of, strip, of scripture, we're talking about the measuring stick of what, what fits, what's appropriate, what belongs within the scripture. And this is important because again, it's the, the Bible is really a collection of 66 books, 39 in the old Testament, 27 in the new Testament. And so the question is, well, what books got included and which ones didn't? Cause there's a lot of books from that period that didn't make the cut. Now, how many people remember the, the, uh, the movie, the Da Vinci code or the book Da Vinci code? Anyone remember that book or movie? It's okay. I'm not going to judge. I liked the movie. Actually, it was a good movie. Complete heresy, but it was a good movie, right? From a, an entertainment perspective. But it, what it did at that time is it sparked all kinds of controversy because this idea that somehow the church had conspired to keep out certain books of the Bible to hide scandalous things about Jesus and so forth. And, and the reality is, and this is really important, the canon was A, it wasn't chosen by a man, right? Because it was actually chosen over a period of centuries. The first time someone actually sat down and said, what books should we include in the church for the New Testament began in 170 AD. That's, that's roughly 140 years after uh, Jesus died. So within two generations, they were starting to sit down and go, oh, I think this one's accurate. I think that one's not. That started in 170 AD and it, com it was completed around 400 AD. So over a period of 230 years, so not one person did it, not one group of people did it. It was multiple groups over centuries. But even then, they didn't choose the canon. God did. Man simply discovered it. See, think about it. If we can trust that God was the author, if God was prompting Paul and Peter and John and Moses and David and Samuel and all these other people, if God prompted those people to write what they wrote, can we not trust that God prompted those, those people in those first few centuries after Jesus died and was born again or resurrected? Can we not trust that God is the one that directed man to choose that canon? That over time it, it solidified. And so by around 400 AD, they, they settled on the 27 books. Now, again, it took some time because initially there were some questions, questions about the book of, of James, which Luther even questioned in the 1500s. The questions around first and second Peter, questions around Revelation. So they had some questions and doubts and, and the book of Revelation was the last book that they settled on to complete that canon. And, and so <clears throat> the question then is, well, what was the criteria then 
for choosing these books. And there was a number of different criteria and it wasn't simply, well, we have a checklist and does it, does it qualify? But, but essentially what they're looking for is did the writer have a relationship with Jesus and the apostles? And that's important, right? Because it's like the game of broken telephone. You know how that works? Like I, I, I whisper a message to Reed and then he whispers it to Greg and then Greg whispers to Sheila and Greg completely butchers it. And, and so Sheila hears something completely different. And we go throughout the whole room and you get something over here that Greg can't even hear because he's deaf, right? So, so that's just kind of happening throughout the room, right? And that's this game broken telephone. So what they want to do is make sure that the closer to the source, the more accurate it is. And so, you know, the, the gospel according to Matthew, well, he was one of the disciples. He was there. John was there. Right, Paul, he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and later on as well. And so they could, they could trust that. Uh, or then you have like Luke, who wasn't a disciple, but Luke was close to Paul. Luke was close to Peter. And so they had those connections, same with Mark and others. And so they could trust that. So that was important. Um, and then, and this was really important as well. Did the church at large recognize it as being scripture? And they knew that based on how often it was referenced by the other church leaders in the second century. So people like Polycarp and Irenaeus and, and Clement and others, how often did they recognize that? So if they're constantly quoting from Romans or first Corinthians and, and uh, second Timothy and so forth, that gives more confidence that yes, this was recognized as being uh, part of scripture. And then did the teaching match? Did it line up? Did it make sense? Because again, all scripture has to agree with itself. So you're not going to have Paul write something over here and then write something over here that's completely different. Then he's never going to be at odds with himself. And that's why the, the, the gospel of Thomas, which was not written by Thomas and was written hundreds of years later, doesn't fit in the canon. Because what they were teaching in the gospel of Thomas was heretical. It didn't line up with the rest of scripture. And so we could reject that one. And then finally, was there confidence that the Holy Spirit wrote this? So again, the Holy Spirit was showing the people, showing the church leaders what books belonged in the canon. <clears throat> so what do we do with these other books? Like the, the, the Apocrypha, right? The book of Maccabees, the book of Enoch and, and so forth. Even say the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Barnabas. There's, there's a plenty of books that were written in what they call the, the second temple period, right? That was that, that time right before Jesus uh, came to earth and, and soon afterwards. What do we do with those books? Well, quite simply, we treat them like any book you would buy today. They're written by a guy, a commentator commentator, right? A regular person like you and I. And what we do is we, we take some of it and we go, wow, that's great. Good meat. Keep that. And then there's some bones and we, we chuck that. And so you can, you could read the book of Maccabees, which is a historical book about what Israel went through in that intertestinal period. And you can learn some things about that. And that's important. You could read the book of Enoch. And you can learn some things about that. And that's important. And the reason I say that is because some of the New Testament writers, namely Peter and Jude, seem to quote from the book of Enoch. That doesn't mean that Enoch belongs in canon. It just means that that was on their minds. And when you're reading Peter and Jude to understand what they're referencing to might give you a bigger window. For example, I talked about Star Wars. It might be, if you're wondering, what's he mean? It might be worth watching some of those movies. Stay away from eight. Anyways. <clears throat> um, so point being is these books aren't evil, right? Like apocryphal makes it sound terrifying a little bit. Um, just don't give them the same weight as scripture, right? Eat the meat, throw away the bones. All right. So why do we study it today? Again, the wisdom of scripture never goes out of style. It's like honey, right? Honey never goes bad. That's how you know it's tested. That's why I personally, I love reading the classics, books that have been around for a long time because they've stood up the test of time. Whereas the stuff that's like, you know, flash in the pan and disappears overnight, it doesn't stand the test. And, and scripture is the only one that truly consistently front to back stands the test of time. And, and so we study it over and over again. Because also it contains for us what the apostles taught. 
Why is that important? Well, we'll turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two, verse 42. And it says here, this is, this is the beginning of the church. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This verse is the first verse we taught on here at new life. First Sunday we met, we taught on this passage because that's what the church is going to be about. And the first thing they list is, is they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching what the apostles were, were, were teaching and what we have recorded for us, especially in that those epistles is the apostles teaching what Jesus conveyed to them about the new gospel or about the new covenant. And so it would make sense to us to go back to that, go back to that original source. Now, here's the thing. What happens is there's a temptation now to say, well, we're wiser now. We know a little bit more now. Culture's different. We've, we've got some advanced study techniques. And so maybe it means this now. And we can distort things. And the hubris of mankind. You know, for all of our technology, all of our wisdom, we don't know how the Egyptians built the pyramids. Yeah, we could do it with our cranes and all kinds of devices. They didn't have any of that. And they did it. Who's the dummy? Or concrete. You know, they just discovered it and they re-engineered it. How the Roman concrete was formed. Like what were the ingredients go into it? Why is that a big deal? Because their aqueducts are 2000 years old and they still stand. Today's concrete doesn't stand the test of time. Look at our roads. And they've only re-engineered it. Meaning they didn't even figure it out. They had to go and go, how'd you guys do it? Help us out. They weren't dumb back then. But, but here's something else. Here's a thought experiment. And, and I know we're going a little bit long, but this is important. Um, <clears throat> when I was doing that study in Genesis, when we were talking about the age of the earth and creation and so forth, um, there was one man and he was surmising that, that the, the universe is expanding and accelerating that expansion. And what that means is the stars that you and I see are actually moving away from us and getting faster and faster and faster. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't have a stopwatch or radar gun on them, but uh, let's assume for a moment that's true. And let's assume for a moment enough time passes where those stars are moving away from us faster than the speed of light. What happens to that star from our vantage point, the moment that star is moving away faster than the speed of light? It disappears. Because it can't catch up to us. And it's gone. It vanishes from the sky. A little more time passes by, all the stars are gone. Now, we've grown, we're smart, we've got technology now, we've got advanced telescopes out there, right? And they're, they're reading stuff, but all they get is just, blank emptiness. And those scientists of the day conclude the space is empty. There's nothing out there. We're alone. That's it. We have the, the, our own little unique solar system and nothing else. That's what they conclude. And then, so it says, well, wait a minute. We got these historical reports. People talked about stars and, and moons and planets and galaxies. And you know what they would say? Well, we could trust what they saw in their primitive minds all those years ago, or we can trust our great technology. Well, which we write. It's not their technology. It was that historical record. So what we have here is we have the historical record of men and women's eyewitness testimony of God interacting with man. Let's go back to that. Let's trust that. There's great value in that. Now, the next argument comes, well, hasn't the Bible been changed? Hasn't been manipulated? No. That we're, again, God, God's figured all this out ahead of time. It's the most examined and critically tested book in existence, and it has stood the test of time. What's interesting, no one questions the writings of Plato. 
Oh yeah, those those are exactly what Plato said. We know that. We trust that. Plato he wrote wrote down what he what he had in around 400 BC. That's when he lived. The oldest uh, manuscript of what he wrote though is 1,200 years later, so around 800 AD. Um, so 1,200 years later, that's the distance between what he wrote and what we have, and we have two copies. But no one questions that. Does anyone question the existence of Caesar? No, no, no. But there's only 10 manuscripts that mention Caesar Augustus. And, and the earliest manuscript is a thousand years after he lived. But no one questions that. Aristotle has 49 copies and there's 1400 years between when he wrote it and the oldest manuscript. No one qu questions that. The Iliad written by Homer has the most 643 copies of manuscripts. And, and there are 500 years between when they were written and the oldest manuscript. No one questions that. The New Testament has almost 5,700 different manuscripts. And some of those oldest manuscripts are within a hundred or so years of when they were written. Most time tested. And here's what's amazing. Is in 1946, 47, um, in a place called Qumran, they discovered what was known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. So Qumran was a, was a little uh, town uh, about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem and next to a body of water. Any guesses what the body of water was called? Dead Sea. Well done. Paying attention. Right? So they found these caves. A little boy was like throwing rocks into a cave. I could totally see Caleb doing that. Smashes something. Bowls probably, right? What have I done? Right? Goes and tells his mom, hey, I think we, we broke something. They go into this cave and they find that the kid broke a jar. And in the jar were these scrolls. Man, the timing of God. Perfect. Well, they've gone on to discover 12 caves filled with these writings. And, and they think there's might be more, more caves to be discovered, but even in those 12 caves, they haven't figured it all out. They haven't been able to examine all of it since they discovered it in 1947. But one of the great finds they found was an entire scroll of the book of Isaiah. And they compared that. This book is a thousand years older than anything they had. This manuscript is a thousand years older, they said, than anything uh, they previously possessed. It dated back to around at, at, the, at the earliest 150 AD, maybe as old as 350, or sorry, 150 BC, maybe even 350 BC. And when they compared the book of Isaiah to what we have today, no difference really. There's some spelling mistakes, but hey, we still struggle with our spelling. We've autocorrect, right? And so, but other than that, the meaning, the context, the, the, the what matters, identical. The word of God hasn't changed. We have confidence in that. So we can trust what we read. We can trust what we study. And that's, that's the big thing. I want you to have confidence in this book. This is the word of God, preserved, kept, kept safe. I mean, there are people who try to twist it, but they're not bigger than God. And God's the one that's keeping it. Well, what do we do about translations? There's a lot of different translations out there. And we're gonna move quickly through this part. Uh, mainline transi transi uh, translations, things like King James, New American Standard, uh, English Standard, that's ESV, uh, the New Revised Standard, uh, even the NIV. Those are, are translations that have been uh, developed by a group of scholars. And I think that's important. It's not just one person's interpretation to it. It's a group of, of people who have come together and, and decided... This is the best way to translate this word or this passage. And each one's a little bit different. You see, within translations, there's always a little degree of interpretation. It's, there's, it's not as simple as, oh, you just, you know, English word, English word, English word, and there you go. Because grammar is different and it's an idea and words matter within the context. And, and so you're trying to understand all that. And so some translations like the NIV, they're more thought by thought. So they would take a verse and they would try, well, what's the verse trying to say? Okay, well, let's, let's put the best English way and we'll mix the, mix the words around to convey that idea. And then you have other ones like the New American Standard and ESV that are like, well, let's be more literal here. And so what does the word mean? That's why I like the New American Standard. Robin likes the ESV. If you like the NIV, I don't judge you. That's okay. Um, <clears throat> I do a little. Oh, I, I'm kidding, I don't. Um, but I like the New American Standard because it's most literal but it's very wooden. It's 
very difficult to kind of work our way through. Um, but that's great for our study. But then you have these paraphrases. And these paraphrases are generally the product of one person. So like the message by Eugene Peterson or J.B. Phillips by J.B. Phillips, um, the New Living Testament. Generally, what they've done is they've, they've put their own, a lot more interpretation into the translation. And that's good. That's helpful to read. But I would never use those, those paraphrases as my study because there's just too much interpretation baked into it. It's too much broken telephone that I would, I would put a lot of confidence into it. So what's the best translation people ask? And I always say this, the original language, but I don't know Hebrew and I don't know Greek and I certainly don't know Aramaic. And so I, I got to trust my English translations and we are blessed. We are fortunate. We have very good, reliable translations, but no one single translation is perfect not even the King James. Please understand the King James was not authored by God, right? I remember I made the joke once, you know, King James, good enough for the apostle Paul is good enough for us, right? And one man said, amen. And I had to point out to him that the King James Bible was written 1500 years after the apostle Paul lived. He never had it. So which translation do you use? Multiple ones. If you're really studying a passage, read a bunch of passages or from or read a bunch of uh, translations and, and try to figure it all together. So just read it. That's the most important part of it. Just pick up the Bible. Now we don't, we don't have enough time to go into to more detail, but the key is, is read it. Whether you read small passages, like just a couple verses and just meditate on that. Whether you read in large chunks, like a chapter or, or two, great, do it. See, the, the more you read it, the more it can begin to, to permeate your thinking. What it does, I like this way, is it gives the Holy Spirit something to um, uh, speak to us or draw from when he's speaking to us, right? Because he'll use his word and we'll go, oh, that's how I know it's God speaking to me, right? So read it, consume it. And again, we're so blessed. I mean, we've, no one has ever lived in this time where the Bible is so easily accessible so available, so widely available. And if, if you don't have one, come speak to me. I will get you a Bible. I'll get you a physical Bible of your own. What a gift that is. Again, a few hundred years ago, it was illegal to possess that. They were being told, don't read the Bible. Ridiculous. Read it. And what you do, how you approach it, you start by observing it. What is it saying? What do you notice? Who's he writing it to? The context. What, what were they thinking and feeling in this moment? And, and, and really kind of put yourself in those shoes, observe it, notice things like repetition, uh, repetition and, and word choice and so forth. And then you begin to interpret it as if you were that initial reader. If you were a Jew, if you were a Corinthian, if you were a Roman, if you were Timothy, if you were Titus, how would you have understood that letter? And then you want to verify your interpretation. Does it fit other parts of scripture? For example, if you read a passage and in that passage, it seems, man, I could lose my salvation because I got to work to keep it. Well, that doesn't line up with Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. And so we say, well, no, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is clear and simple. That is, that's obvious. So we're going to allow that to help understand our interpretation of a more difficult passage, like in Hebrews 6. So the, the simple help to interpret the, the more difficult, even if it's to rule out what it doesn't mean. And so then after you verify it, now you can begin to apply it. That may, may sound overwhelming to you. It was to me, but here's the cool thing. God's gifted you and I with the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, he's the teacher. He will bring to your remembrance, Jesus says, all the things that Jesus has spoken to you. He will be your teacher. That's amazing to us. So we have the Holy Spirit. He's equipped us with great teachers. And, and some are here, many are online, better ones online probably. And, and, and so there's great teachers out there, authors. So there's a lot of resources out there. But the more you do it, the better you'll, you'll become at it. It takes practice. I mean, is anything in your life just naturally came to you? First time you picked up a hockey stick, you're ready to go in the NHL. First time you picked up a basketball, you could hit a three-pointer all the time. First time you sat at a keyboard, you're playing concerto 17 from Bach. I don't know if that exists, but you're, you know, you're, it, it takes practice, takes time, put in the time. 
It's worth it. Pick up the Bible, just read it and get to know your father. Get to know his love for you. Get to know who you are. Let's pray. Father, light in there. And I pray that you will uh, stir up a passion in us. Maybe, maybe to, to just verify and, and study more what, what, what I've said about things like the Apocrypha and the Tanakh and all these things and the canon. Fascinating history, Lord. More importantly, may you stir up a passion within us for your word. A passion to get to know who you are. May you meet us there. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.